0: I invite you to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist On the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. Let's seek the Lord. We come before this text, Father, in prayer. We lay out our requests before You, asking that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, teach us the truth of this passage, may We grow in its light. May we be prepared to represent Jesus as we honor these words. For those who know not Christ as Lord and Savior, as the risen King and coming ruler who will judge the living and the dead, I pray that you would draw to yourself anyone who is apart from Christ today. Open their eyes to see the truth. Do what you alone can do to open their eyes to this message of salvation in our Savior. As we labor together in this passage, I pray, God, that You would fit us now to, with zeal, attend to this Word and to apply it faithfully as we instruct one another and as You instruct our hearts. Help us to understand and grow, we pray. We lay this request before You asking that the Word would do its work and that You will change us and conform us into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Born-again Christians are lousy citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. Our King is the risen Christ. So what do we care about government and law and politics or justice? The earth is cursed. But we look to the return of Jesus and to a new earth. Why care about this one? And people, they're all dying anyway. Why waste our time fighting disease and easing pain, exposing abuse and corruption or alleviating toil? This is not our home. We are simply passing through. What do you think? Wrong, 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 isn't it? It is gloriously true that our citizenship is in heaven. Christ reigns and we will escape a cursed world. But it is precisely because we know the risen Christ as Savior that we live in a way that is engaged with hope in this world. We, in fact, have the privilege to be ideal citizens in the sense that we come to everything with a balanced approach. A balance on one hand, we do not worship this world. And so we don't grieve with panicked horror every time something goes wrong. And yet, on the other hand, we know this is God's world. Yes, it is broken by sin, but it's destined for renewal, this world and For now, we are stewards for the glory of our God who made this world to sing His praises. So we have this right balance as we relate to this world as citizens. So we do fight injustice and poverty and disease and suffering and abuse and corruption because they are invaders of our Creator's design. And they are the very target of our Savior's risen conquest. We go after the wrong. We seek to alleviate that which is broken and fallen for our Savior's name. C.S. Lewis, some of whose thoughts I channel here, said it so well in his concluding thoughts on this idea. He said, Because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. When this world is it, you can't see it properly. When there is no risen, reigning Lord, you're blind to what you see. What's right there in front of you, we can't filter it properly unless we know the truth about the reigning Christ. We know the truth about our Creator God and all that He desires for this world. So it is precisely because we are citizens of Christ's kingdom that true Christians can be and strive to be the best citizens of any nation in which God places us. And He can place us anywhere. Not just this nation, but any nation where we find ourselves there, we can be the best citizens under maybe very diverse settings. Coming back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, remember there that Paul calls us as the followers of Christ to be not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Linking that now to the way in which we relate to the world that we live in, our citizenship here on earth as we consider that. There's new thinking that is put out here for us as we come to chapter 13 and verse 1. We notice, first of all, we are called as the followers of Christ to submit to civil authorities in response to God's sovereign rule. We find this in the first two verses. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's the moral imperative, God's call upon our lives. Every person means everyone, but obviously, specifically here, he's addressing believers. So let's put it very simply, straightforward. God wants you to willingly submit to the laws, regulations, and directives of the civil authorities who serve your city, your district, your county, your state, this nation. That is the Lord's will. To obey the law, to submit to law enforcement officers, is Christlike. It is an aspect of our discipleship. Well, let's ask the question, why is this right? Why is it God-honoring for Christians to submit to even unbelieving rulers? Why is that God-honoring? Verse 1 continues, you see the word for, for... There is no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist have been instituted by God. Paul does not say that all governmental officials and law enforcement officers are godly people. He doesn't say that every one of them always does what is right. What he does say is that God put them in office. And this is God's mercy to us. Think about it for a minute. Can you imagine what it takes to run a nation? To make it work? Can we imagine the harm to church ministries? The harm to global missions if Christians had to do all of that work? We'd get nothing else done. We'd just keep people alive at best. But in His mercy, God calls a sprinkling of Christians into that work. But by God's mercy, He mostly places unbelievers in a position to run our world. And this enables Jesus' church to carry forward Jesus' mission in this world. Think of how that works as God puts people in place to do these things that are necessary. Our Heavenly Father loves us enough to set in place authorities who labor in common grace to secure peace and safety for citizens. This being true, our sovereign God actively placing people in positions of civil authority. Verse 2. This is the case then that whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. God seems rather serious about this matter, does He not? Resist the police and you resist God. Break the law and and you resist people that God himself has appointed to do his bidding his bidding disregard a judge's ruling or an official's directive and you oppose the Lord whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and this reveals one reason that a Christian citizen is a better citizen we're not merely motivated by our sense of civic duty We're not motivated wholly by pragmatic concerns, but we're motivated by our duty to the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. As verse 2 says, we will incur judgment. Those who resist will incur judgment. Now, the question there, is this a reference to God's judgment? I think it certainly involves that. But I think verse 3 points to the ruling authorities' judgment against lawbreakers. I take that from that 4 we find here in verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. So the incurring of judgment here, we'll come back to this point, but I think it's referring to the authorities who will bring judgment against those who break the law. A few observations though at this point before we get back to that. Bible interpreters have devised many ways by which to minimize if not entirely dismiss the implications of this passage. Some would argue Paul just spoke to his day. This doesn't apply to us any longer. It has nothing really to do with us. There are others that would argue that Paul speaks only of authorities whose laws and directives strictly align with Jesus' teaching. If they're doing Jesus' bidding, then we obey. If not, then that's a different issue. But I think it helps us to bridge the gap from our day back to Paul's day and to go into his context for a while. Paul is an extreme minority. He's a minority as a Jewish Hebrew teacher. He's a minority as a Christian. And he's not in a safe environment. He's in a world that's very broken. In fact, there's all types of upheaval that surrounds Paul and Rome and the empire. And the emperor, who's that? That's Nero. I, I really don't think any of us will live long enough in this nation to ever see a president of the United States that's as bad as Nero. Nero. Sometimes we may seem to be trying, but we are a long, long ways from that. Nero was thoroughly corrupt. He was a godless man who cared nothing for truth or right whatsoever. That's Paul's environment, and I think that's helpful to us. Paul isn't saying, we have such wonderful Roman officials here. So I want to tell you that it's vital that we honor the law here because they're such good people. Let's remember the empire of which he is a citizen killed his Savior. There was never a greater injustice that has ever been measured out in this world than the death of Jesus. It's in that environment that Paul says the authorities are God's servants for your good. Don't incur their judgment. So we must realize Paul's not naive. He knows the world around him. In fact, he himself is going to be executed unjustly by this empire. That's not what he's saying, that they're all good people with all great ideas and we can obey them as long as they follow Jesus. That's not where he's coming. He's not that naive. He's speaking ideally. Ideally. We'll return to that thought, but suffice it to say here that Paul means what he says. He believes that a sovereign God rules not only over good, but that a sovereign God rules also over evil and evil people. And this is a problem when we have a small God. Injustice has no feet to stand on in our interpretation and in our understanding when we don't believe in a sovereign God. Paul did. He said, Christian, listen, it's a broken world. We're going to be led by fallen people. There are going to be laws that are ridiculous and indeed need to be changed. But recognize this, there's a sovereign God who places individuals in those positions. And it is our task, generally speaking, all things rightly considered, to subject ourselves to those authorities, not to lead a Christian rebellion. Remember Jesus teaching a pilot, you have no authority but what God has given you. That's the spirit of the passage. And that much is clear. But let's also consider the difference between submitting to a law and agreeing with it. When we blow off a law, when we dismiss it as stupid, when we disrespect lawmakers, we lose sight of the larger picture. And believe me, I don't think anybody can keep up with me with the critical spirit that can come sometimes when you consider the folly of some legislation. And the injustice and folly sometimes of the way that people enforce that legislation. We all realize that. But when we just dismiss lawmakers and law enforcers, we lose sight of the larger picture. There is a sovereign God in heaven. He reigns with power over those authorities as they legislate and enforce the laws of the land in which we live by the grace of God. And we must respect the Lord's work. A reference to law enforcement leads Paul to a parallel, but somewhat distinct thought. Secondly, beginning at verse 3, we must submit to civil authorities in response to their assigned rule. So we're rec- role we're uh, recognizing God's sovereign rule, but we also have to realize that civil authorities have an assigned role by the Lord. And let's consider that for a few moments here. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Pretty simple point. You reap what you sow. Rulers enforce laws, break a law, and you will be punished. Do what is right, obey the law, and you will have no reason to live in fear of prosecution. In fact, the ruler will commend you, and serve your well-being. Again, he speaks ideally. He speaks generally of what is the case. But lest we think Paul speaks only pragmatically, don't break the law so that you won't be punished. Notice verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath, On the wrongdoer. The sword here is a figure of speech for law enforcement. That is, God uses civil authorities, courts, and police officers to resist those who harm others and disrupt the peace of a society. Reinhold Niebuhr made this observation in this context it's God's goodness in creation which makes civil order possible, but it is the corruption of sin which makes civil order necessary. And obviously part of the problem is that sinners enforce the law. But, as we look generally at what God is saying here, there is an enforcement here that does fight back against wrong and evil. And we should respect that. It's interesting, Paul lays out the possibility, in fact, here then, that God may stand more with a godless law enforcement agent than with his own children if we prove to be lawbreakers. It's not to say that God rejects us, but it is to say that He is actively enforcing law to fight back against the evil that corrupts this world and to promote the good that keeps the world through common grace functioning so that the gospel goes forward, so that our lives are lived out for His honor in as much peace as is possible. So the vengeance that we're not to exact as individuals against enemies, chapter 12, verse 19, is sometimes administered by God through civil authorities. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. There's a couple of challenges with this verse. The first is that the Greek text does not have the word God. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath. That word, God's, is not in the original text. It's a really rare moment that I have to make such an observation. Our translations are immensely accurate. The ESV is very helpful to us. But here I think it's a bit misleading. It really literally reads, Be in subjection not only to, uh, for the sake of avoiding wrath, or the wrath. So wrath here, I think, is connected contextually to the word judgment at the end of verse 2. You see that word, the judgment that's there. You will incur judgment. Or to the terror of prosecution in verse 3. And then to the last phrase of verse 4b, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. All of these are clearly referring to those who enforce the law, human beings. Not to God himself, though God is using them. So I think we have a little bit of a challenge here, but I think that Paul is referring to human rulers as they exercise wrath in the sense that they prosecute those who break the law. The second problem with verse 5 is that the first part of the verse summarizes what comes before, and I think the second part of the verse very subtly points to what follows. A little bit of a challenge here. Paul's speaking kind of quickly and writing quickly There He says, verse 5, Therefore one must be in subjection. Let me just take out some words to give the idea. One must be in subjection to avoid punishment. That's what has come to this point in the text. But I think now he is secondly saying, One must be in subjection for the sake of conscience. A second idea, which I think now follows in a third point. That's a bit subtle, I realize, but hang in there. I think this is where we're headed with it, and you can judge this as you seek to discern the text. But he mentions here conscience. A clear conscience certainly responds to all that has followed here in verses 1 through 4, but I think it also refers to verses 6 and 7, where Paul draws some practical points of application. Is your conscience engaged? As we move to verse 6. For because of this, because of conscience, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Four, an example of a way in which believers keep a clear conscience before God. That is, as believers, we pay taxes sensing in our spirits that defrauding the government of revenue for selfish reasons does not please God. I don't like what they do with a lot of it. But that's not the question. The question here is in conscience, I know defrauding the government is not god honoring. And so we pay taxes. But it's not a happy thought, is it? And what they do with it isn't a happy thought, and how much they collect sometimes is not a happy thought. I saw a cartoon one time it really resonated with me. It said simplified tax form Line one, record your income here. Line two, send it in. That's how it seems sometimes, doesn't it? And we're right, I think, at points to push back and to show concern. We're not brainless to turn our thoughts off. We recognize that money is not used wisely in this nation, nor in our homes sometimes. But Christian, on this Lord's Day, this beautiful snowy Lord's Day, let's stop for a minute and let's look at it from another angle. You complain like I complain, I'm sure. And I read things and watch things and it gets you upset. But let's stop for a moment and think about what our tax dollars secure for us, particularly here in the United States, just for a moment. As we give in taxes, they provide global Military protection. They provide local police protection and law enforcement. Our taxes provide roadways that are unimaginably safe and smooth compared to most of the world. There are schools and stadiums and government centers and research centers and airport terminals and public restrooms. There's an abundant supply of electricity and heat and safe running water, environmental protections and maintenance. There are salaries for massive numbers of service employees and governing officials. We have a lot of reasons to complain about taxes. But let us give thanks to God. He pours out His grace day after day as tax dollars are poured out servicing and protecting each one of us on a thousand levels. That's in part what Paul is revealing here. In clear conscience, you know that God has designed government to serve you and to provide for you and to protect for you. And so you give Taxes. You pay what is owed. So, verse 7, the natural imperative that follows is pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Here, the kind of indirect taxes such as a sales tax or tolls or customs duties, these types of taxes. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And we'll get to it. Sometimes honor is not owed. And we need to recognize those places, but we also need to recognize that there is a place of honor and respect that is owed to those who watch over our safety and care for our needs in governmental provision. But, let's meditate on it for a bit. Paul does not cover every eventuality, does he? In fact, you almost feel like you're riding a horse here that really wants to run and you keep reining it in. Obey the government. Honor officials. And there's there's something that wants to get away from us here that we won't listen to what has been said. But let's hit it now there is something conspicuously missing in this passage. There's no qualifier. There are indeed times we must not obey the ruling authorities because to do so would be to dishonor Christ. There are governments so corrupt as to demand civil disobedience, if not something harsher. Bonhoeffer's participation in a plot to assassinate Hitler comes to mind. Or, in that same era, those who hid Jews during World War II in their homes. The Underground Railroad rescuing slaves during the Civil War. Numerous examples could be seen from our own nation in our current times. It's a tricky business. And we must be careful never to justify actions that put us at odds with God's will. But clearly... Paul is not ignorant of his Bible. He knows, for instance, the example of Daniel in Babylon. And we have the instance in Acts chapters 4 and 5 in the early church. There are times we must obey God by disobeying civil authorities. God is the sovereign ruler. No human ruler can unseat in our affections, in our actions, the Lord Himself. And so, as the Apostle Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. Paul knows all of this. He's not dismissing this line of thought by any means. But the times that we must obey God in disobedience to the authorities are relatively rare, and Paul speaks generally and ideally of normal actions, normal conditions. We may not like the laws that rulers enforce. We may not like the way sometimes that they are enforced. The people who create, the people who promote, the people who enforce those laws, many of them are wicked people. In the common grace of God, many of them get the job done as well. It's not an easy equation, and those who want to push it into one equation on either side of the matter need to be cautioned. There is wrong that is done in both directions. We need to discern where that is from Christ's perspective. But as Paul lays this out here for us, looking at it ideally, we need to know that fundamentally we start not with the authorities. We start with the risen Christ. There is a sovereign God in heaven. And he's not fooled by the fact that people are wicked and do evil things. And that there are politicians who are foolish and pass laws that seem calibrated to simply make our lives miserable. God knows this. But he's also reigning in heaven. And we must know this. So while we may not like laws that rulers enforce, while there may be wicked people mixed in among them, as Jesus' people, we are to be the best of all citizens, because our attitudes, our actions, and our affections are grounded not in this nation as our hope. Our actions and attitudes and affections are grounded in the kingdom of Christ. That's our hope. One authors said this. Paul, as we consider the way that he's looking at this matter, approached the relation of church and state not as a Sadducee who lived from the advantages of the state. Not as a zealot who lived to overthrow the state. Nor as a Pharisee who divorced religion from the state nor as a Roman citizen for whom the state was an end in itself. Paul wrote as a free man in Christ, and he appeals to the church to be equally free in obedience to the state, but not conformed to it. He those are beautiful words and rightly said, as we consider what Paul is doing here, what his intention is. So in conformity to Christ then, The best American citizens have dual citizenship and they live as if they had dual citizenship. There are some Christians who live as if this world doesn't exist. They're just passing through. It's a meaningless process. There are others you would think have hinged every hope on this nation, on its laws and law enforcement, as if this is the end all. It's not. Maybe we remember this. The most honorable citizens of any earthly kingdom are those who know they are also citizens of a heavenly kingdom and who live in submission to the God who appoints all earthly rulers. There's where my fellowship is with our brothers and sisters throughout the world. And I've sat in the living rooms of people with... Governments that we couldn't even begin to understand. They are so ruthless and cruel and wrong. The injustices that we fight here and should are minuscule to what some of our brothers and sisters in Christ face, some of them that have spoken here in this assembly. But as I sit in the living room and talk through politics in a down moment, we're on the same page. It is applied so differently, but we're on the same page. There is a Christ in heaven. There is sin on earth. It is a mess, but by His grace, He provides those who seek to keep us safe. He provides in His mercies the rule of law. And even when that law is corrupt, how often it provides. We have individuals that we support as a church that have suffered greatly at the hands of their governments. Yet it's interesting that they also live most days in peace and prosperity. Even where Christianity is despised. God rules. He's at work. We need to be discerning but we need to appreciate what's really going on. And so there should be a conviction, I think, that comes out of this text for us today, and that is this, that human authority is designed by God for our good. Human authority. There's not a single person on this planet that is sinless. But God has designed human authority, and when we push against it, we push against God. Generally speaking, there's a second conviction and that is that our sovereign God reigns even using by His providence wicked people to provide peace and prosperity for those who will spread His gospel. And as they carry out that mission, we learn that God does not intend for the state to rule the church or for the church to rule the state. He does not want the state to favor the church so as to steal the church's cohesive influence on society while the church caters to the state in order to maintain its privileged position in society. And the historical, generic church of Jesus Christ has been in all three of those quagmires. And the glory of Christ is not what's come out of it. Obviously, it's not... The church's fault when the government is seeking to run the church. But in all three of these areas, we are not on the ideal that Christ intends. Rather, God intends for the church and state to encourage each other to fulfill their God given roles. The church to spread the gospel. The state to wield the sword in the service of peace and prosperity. And in the work of the state, By the grace of God, there are those believers who are salt and light in those institutions, carrying out God's intention. And we thank God for them, and may God increase their tribe. We need them. But we cannot put every Christian in the service of government. We dare not. For we need to be salt and light in the public realm. And we need to be salt and light that carry the Gospel of Jesus Christ and do that business as well. And Christ's intention was always then for these two to operate within their unique realm of responsibility under the Sovereign Lord's directive. And So for those who know Christ as Savior and are striving to be Christ-like, may we love this world best precisely because we are citizens of another home. There are likely here as well this morning those who have not yet come to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. I understand that some of these ideas, what Paul has said here and what I'm sharing will sound perhaps very foreign and maybe really off base to you. All of this talk of laws and rules and punishment and how we need to be subject citizens. How does that hit you? Well, it's going to hit you a certain way if you break the laws of this land, if you cheat on taxes, if you dishonor those who rule. But the problem is probably not these things. I would say certainly that the problem goes a lot deeper, and that is that there is in your heart a rebellion against God Himself. We've all been there. We all know that rebellion of heart. The true problem, though, needs to be identified, and that is our relationship with the Lord who rules. This situation may serve, that is, the situation of breaking the law, Pressing the edges, disrespecting those in authority, living my own life pragmatically with no concern about walking in line with anybody but myself. All of that is really a reflection of a much deeper problem that you have with God. The God who says that to take what belongs to another is stealing and breaks my law. The God who says that lying on a tax form is untrue and evil. The God who legislates against unjust anger and bitterness. The God who says that we must love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The God who speaks of the necessity to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We come to realize through, as we grow up through this world, that we don't like law. And we chafe ultimately against God's law. But here is the beauty behind all that Paul is saying here. And here is he is just simply reflecting what has come in the, previously in this book. And that, that there is a Christ who has taken our place and paid the penalty of our law-breaking. Every one of us can point to lawbreakers and be judgmental. Every one of us can point to some law enforcement officer or some governing official and point the finger and condemn. But really where God is leading us, where the Spirit of God is directing us ultimately is to look down deep inside and say, I am that lawbreaker. I am that one who enforces rules unjustly and to come to terms with the Christ who died in the place of lawbreakers. Who took our sin on Himself and paid the penalty that was owed to us. When we look at this from God's angle, not just from a human angle where we we compare ourselves among ourselves, we look at it from God's angle. The deepest and greatest injustice that has ever been served in this world is my sin that led to the crucifixion of Christ. But our Savior came in to our injustice, to our law-breaking, and He took that crime on Himself, and He died in my place. And it's in coming to recognize that that's who I am, And coming to recognize that this is what Christ has done, that we find our freedom and our release from being all bound up with what's wrong here and what others do that is wrong, ignoring what I do that is wrong. But here we can open our heart and say, I am that sinner. I am that lawbreaker. But Christ is a greater Savior, He has rescued us from that sin by Christ's death, giving us His resurrection life as He defeated death, thus providing for the renewal of all of this mess that we face. And it's a mess. We're all broken people on some part of this equation. But God in His mercy, through the resurrection of Christ, will renew this all. And that transforms the way that we look at it all. It infuses us with hope. It infuses us with a sense of righteousness and goodness and it gives us the call to submit to what god is doing whatever that is yes there are times to break the law there are times that the law needs to be changed there are all kinds of things that are wrong because we're wrong but by god's grace he has provided this way for our safety for our stability generally and we praise him for it and we align our lives to a christ-like response to what the sovereign god is doing as he works with sinners sinners like you and me but by his grace forgiven rescued and one day living in his presence where there will be no sin and no need for the enforcement of law because we'll be glorified May that day come. And may we be faithful until we get there. Lord, we need You to aid us. So many things cannot be said. So many points of application. Lord, I pray that You would permit these truths to filter down within our soul and for us to see the picture as we should see it. There should be, I know, the preaching of Your Word, my Feeble words are incapable of accomplishing what needs to happen here. But I pray that by Your Spirit, ultimately, there would be an awe that settles over each one of us as we consider what You are doing to care for us in a fallen world. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to love others as we love ourselves. I thank you for those who enforce the law. What a challenging and difficult task they have so often. To every day be looking for the people none of us ever wants to meet. Bless them in that endeavor. And identify those who fail in that noble task who serve to enforce the law for their own purposes, their own self-centered, godless reasons. May they be exposed and removed. But Lord, may we not lose sight of the people that you use by common grace every day to protect us, to direct us, to allow for ease of life. We thank you. And Lord, for those of us who are lawbreakers, May each one come to a sense of what Christ has done to give us saving grace to forgive our sins and to allow us to live now a life not where we're always seeking to break the law but where we are anxiously and gloriously given to keep it and to walk in the wisdom of Your ways. As we look away from this fallen world and all of the fingers that we could point at others, may we look to our own hearts. May some, may most here, I trust, thank You, that as lawbreakers we've been forgiven. Those that remain unforgiven, bring them, Father, I pray, even today in the light of this passage to Christ crucified and risen, in whose name we pray.